And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Well, about 30 years ago, a German man, he ignored the warning signs around the perimeter of Athabasca Glacier. Now, the sign said to stay off the glacier, of course, because it's dangerous. And this man walked out onto a snow bridge that was over a, 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 a hidden crevice. And the snow bridge gave way. He fell, and before they could get to him, of course, he had frozen to death. Now, despite that, to this day, in spite of the warning signs and the extreme danger, there are dozens of tourists every week, including families with children, that walk out on that glacier as if they're just taking a stroll through the park. There are times that you don't know that you're in great danger, but you don't even know it. Now, since the greatest danger of all is the danger of dying and facing God's eternal punishment. There are none in greater danger than those who are really just oblivious to that fact. Uh, these people stroll through life just a heartbeat away from hell. And they never even think about God's wrath. It never occurs to them that they're going to face His judgment against their sins one day. Such people need to be awakened to their great need so that they can flee to the only remedy that God has provided, and that's His abundant grace in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, those standing around uh, watching the crucifixion, they were in grave spiritual danger. Most of them were oblivious to it. The Roman so soldiers, they saw it as just another day's work. Some in the crowd saw it as a gruesome but interesting spectacle. Many were saddened, thinking that a good man had been treated cruelly and unjustly, but they really made no connection between their own sin and his death. The Jewish leaders, they were mostly re uh, relieved, kind of glad that this troublesome prophet uh, was dying who was hindering their temple business. So the, the people there around the cross were in varying degrees of spiritual danger, but they were really oblivious to it, and they didn't have any idea. Into this scene comes a cry from Jesus on the cross that reveals two things, really, the sinner's great need and God's greater grace. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As I mentioned a minute ago, it's the first of seven final statements that we have uh, when you, you put all the Gospels together that Jesus spoke from the cross. Now, Luke only records three of them, and we're going to talk about the other two here in, in a few weeks, the Lord willing. For today, Jesus' prayer reveals our great need and God's greater grace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we uh, pray for your spirit just to touch our hearts. Father, to give us a spark of that spiritual life that is awake to you, Father, that hears the words that are being said, not only just in our ears, but in our heart as well. God, speak this truth again so that we can just see Jesus high and lifted up and be drawn to him. Do your work in our hearts that at the end of the day, we'll give you praise and glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, we need to think carefully about this verse uh, because many have drawn conclusions from it uh, that actually contradict other scriptures. I want you to note briefly four things that this prayer was not. Number one, this was not a prayer for pardon apart from repentance and faith, since such a thing is really foreign to scripture. 
In other words, Jesus wasn't conferring God's pardon on those who crucified him with no, you know, no, no matter how they continued living. God never forgives sin apart from genuine repentance and faith of the sinner. Jesus' prayer that, that God would forgive, that was really a prayer that his persecutors would repent and believe. Well, number two, this was not a prayer to cancel God's temporal judgment on Israel. In the verses just preceding, Jesus, uh, he told the women of Jerusalem to weep for themselves, um, uh, to weep for themselves and for their children because God was going to bring such terrible judgment on the nation that they would wish that they never had children. And he's not negating that here. Number three, this was not a prayer for every person in the crowd that day, but only for some. If it pertained to everyone, then everyone, including Caiaphas and the other wicked leaders who had instigated the crucifixion, they would have been saved. But we don't believe that is right. We know that this prayer was answered because Jesus never prayed an unanswered prayer. Now, while it's true that God did spare Jerusalem from judgment for another 40 years, and He allowed many to come to faith, Jesus' prayer was not just for sparing the city, but for forgiveness. Uh, and that means God's salvation. It's not enough to say that Jesus provided the possibility of salvation for all, since He prays for actual forgiveness for those who were ignorantly killing Him. So we must understand Jesus' prayers applying to those in the crowd that the Father had chosen to give to the Son, but who had not yet come to faith in Him. In John 6, 37-39, Jesus taught that the Father had already given to the Son a particular number of souls and that Jesus would not lose any of them. He says He'll raise them up on the last day. Further, in John 17, on the night before His crucifixion, we call John 17 the high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying there to the Father. And again, He mentions five times in His prayer that the Father has given some to the Son. And it's actually for those that He prays. He doesn't pray for the whole world. And John tells us that explicitly. Now, while God's, while God's forgiveness is available to all who will come to Jesus, the Bible is clear that only ones, the only ones who will come to Jesus are those that God draws. So we'd be mistaken to say that Jesus here is asking God to forgive everyone. Christ laid down His life for the sheep. We see that in John 10 very clearly. They are the only ones who experience God's forgiveness. Now, number four, this is not a prayer granting forgiveness to all who are spiritually ignorant. His reason, for they do not know what they are doing, that didn't apply equally to all who were there before the cross that day. Uh, the Roman soldiers, they were the most spiritually ignorant. They didn't know the Hebrew Scriptures that, that prophesied of Jesus. They had not heard His teaching. They hadn't seen His miracles. For them, as I said earlier, executing this man was simply another day's work. So they were the most spiritually ignorant of any in the crowd that day. But their spiritual ignorance, it doesn't absolve them of the responsibility and guilt before God. Even though they were carrying out God's predestined purpose, this is what Acts chapter 4 tells us, He says they were still liable before God for a terrible crime. 
Now, moving up on the guilt scale, you've got the Jewish crowd. They knew more about Jesus than the Roman soldiers did. They knew that he was a great prophet at the very least. They knew that he lived a blameless life and that he faithfully taught God's word. Many of them had seen the evidence of God's hand on Jesus through his miracles, but they were somewhat powerless to stop uh, their religious leaders from their evil ways. In fact, they're, they're kind of like when our political leaders are evil. Uh, they just shook their heads in disgust, but there wasn't much that they could do. So their guilt was greater uh, than that of the Roman, Roman soldiers in that they knew more about what was happening. They knew who Jesus you know, claimed to be. But even though they may have been ignorant with regard to his true identity, right, the Son of God, equal to God, those type things, and, and un, unable to stop the crucifixion, they were nonetheless guilty before God. Now, there's no doubt that the most guilty in that crowd that day were the religious leaders. They were rejecting the greatest light. They knew the scriptures better than the average citizen. They knew that Jesus fulfilled many scriptural, scriptural prophecies about the Messiah. They too had seen his mighty works, including the recent raising of Lazarus from the dead. They knew that Jesus' teaching, it confronted their pride, their greed, and their lust for power. So the guilt of the Jewish leaders was the greatest because they sinned against the greatest light. But why then does Jesus seem to use spiritual ignorance as an excuse when he prays, Father, forgive them for because they do not know what they are doing? Peter picks up on this thing in Acts 3.17. He tells his audience, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did. So he says, yeah, you were ignorant. Paul echoes a similar theme in Acts 13, 27. Here he says that both the residents and the rulers in Jerusalem, recognizing neither him, meaning Jesus, nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these, meaning the prophetic utterances, by condemning him, Jesus. Because of their ignorance, they heard these prophecies every Sabbath. And here it was happening right from in front of their eyes, and they didn't recognize it. In 1 Corinthians 2.8, Paul states that if the rulers of this world had understood God's wisdom, he says they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Regarding his own personal testimony, Paul states that even though he was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor, he was shown mercy. Why? Because he acted ignorantly, in unbelief. That's 1 Timothy 1.13. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul explains that in the case of those who are perishing, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, in that sense, every unconverted person is spiritually ignorant. And yet clearly God holds every person accountable for his sin and he will judge every person who does not repent and believe in Jesus. No one's going to be able to stand before God one day and plead ignorance to escape hell. Uh, just read Romans 1, 18 through 20. Paul addresses that specifically and says they are without excuse. Now in light of these verses, I understand Jesus' prayer and Peter and Paul's words to be reflecting the Hebrew concept of unintentional sins of ignorance as opposed to sins of willful defiance.
For sins of ignorance, an offering was available to remove guilt. But for willful, brazen defiance, the person was without hope. I mentioned this verse. Well, actually, he mentioned it to me, uh, Brother Kenneth, I don't know, a couple weeks ago. The author of Hebrews, he picks up on this same thing, and he writes, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. You need to let that, I'm going to read that again. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. Now, I understand this to be tantamount to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, for which there is no forgiveness. We find that in Matthew 12. So I argue that there were some in the crowd who were beyond the scope of Jesus' prayer that day. Some of the Jewish leaders, they had committed that unpardonable sin, right? Attributing the works of God to, or the works of the Spirit, to the Holy Spirit, to Satan. So they were not ignorant, and they could not be forgiven. Other Jewish leaders, like Paul, they were zealous for their Jewish system, but they were ignorant of Jesus' identity. And, and many of them, like Paul, found mercy. We, found a, we find a couple others that are mentioned in Scripture, Nicodemus. Right? We believe he came to know the Lord. Joseph of Arimathea, he was a, a member of the Sanhedrin, but it says that he was a follower of Jesus. Others, like this Jewish crowd, they were even more ignorant. And, and so many of them came to experience God's forgiveness. And probably many of the Roman soldiers also found hope in Christ through the testimony of the early church. While the level of spiritual ignorance may lessen the level of guilt... Ignorance is no excuse when it comes to the final judgment. All stand, all stand guilty and condemned before God, as Paul argues so forcefully in Romans 1 through 3. Now I want to focus on four spiritual applications that we can draw from Jesus' prayer. Number one, the sin of wicked man is much greater than we ever imagined. Ignorance lessens guilt but it never removes it. If it did, then we should leave the heathen to go on in their spiritual darkness without giving them the gospel. Because you give them the gospel, they're no longer ignorant. But that's not the way it works. One mark of genuine conversion is that God is revealing to you more and more the depths of your own sinfulness. At the point of conversion, your eyes are opened and you see how evil you have been living for yourself, ignoring the cross of Christ and the holiness of God's law. As you begin to read God's word, your eyes are opened more and more so that you see with greater clarity how holy God is and how unholy your heart is. You realize how much you have offended God even as a believer. Now, this increasing knowledge of your own sinfulness, that drives you to cling more tightly to the cross of Christ where His mercy is revealed. Now, in preparation for the sermon, I came across just a couple of stanzas of a, a hymn. It was actually just a poem at this point that John Newton wrote that reflects this tension beautifully. And I like those two or three stanzas so much I looked it up. 
and it's actually called Looking at the Cross. He never put it to music, so I put together a tune and put the words to it. Sarah's going to sing it, and we've got it up on the screen. Um, these are some powerful words. You listen and you read as Sarah sings here.
that that last go back to the last you know, the last verse uh, one more or two more yeah right there with pleasing grief and mournful joy my spirit now is filled that I should such a life destroy talking about Jesus on the cross because of our sins yet live by him I killed okay that leads us into the second point the mercy of holy God of the holy God is much greater than we ever imagined Jesus' prayer fulfilled the words of Isaiah 53, 12. There, Isaiah says, He poured, talking about the suffering servant, the Messiah, He poured out Himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet He Himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That's what he's doing right there. J.C. Ryle remarks, as soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. Now, thankfully, his mercy is not based on our merit or degree of sinlessness, sinlessness or no one could qualify. It's based simply on his sovereign grace, given freely those, to those who really deserve his wrath. Now, Jesus' prayer for those who crucified him should teach us to never put a limit on God's saving grace. And we often do that, don't we? We see somebody that we think is so evil that God could never save them, but that is not so. We think they're beyond God's saving grace, and it's just not true. God delights in saving the chief of sinners as a trophy of his abundant mercy. Terrible sins in your past should never hinder you from coming to the cross of Christ for mercy. In fact, the greater danger is that those of us raised in Christian homes will not lay hold of God's grace because we mistakenly think that we're good enough not to need it. We all need it. And thank God none can exhaust it. Well, number three, our need to forgive and pray for those who have wronged us is much greater than we ever imagined. Jesus is our great example here, no doubt. He was free from all bitterness towards those who did this evil deed toward him. Now, most people, including us, if we were in that situation, we would have been uttering threats and curses toward our enemies, but would have no power to carry them out. Jesus had the power to literally obliterate his enemies, but he uttered no threats. Peter calls us to follow Jesus' example, who, while being, being reviled, did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. The fact is, God will be glorified both in his gracious salvation of the elect and in his just judgment on the reprobate. Both of those things bring God glory. The salvation of his elect, that glorifies God's love, his mercy, and his grace. The condemnation of the wicked, that glorifies his justice, his righteousness, his holiness. I think I can defend, defend the view that, that God is more glorified in his mercy than in his judgment. If you go all the way back to Exodus 34, this is where uh, Moses asked God, hey, sh show me your face, sh show, show yourself to me. 
And so God explains who he is and he says, this is God speaking, he says that he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. And only then does he mention with less emphasis and he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Now you know what that means for us as God's people, we've got to go overboard on showing mercy to those who have wronged us. We can leave the matter of judgment to God. And if sinners do not repent, then one day we'll rejoice. David actually says that we'll wash our feet in the blood of the wicked. That's Psalm 58.10. And that's when God comes to judge the wicked in, in righteousness. But for us, we must follow the clear command and example of our Savior. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. Now we have been forgiven a debt of sin that we could never repay. We must show forgiveness to those who have wronged us. Well, number four, our great need to trust God in a time of trial is much greater than we ever imagined. When your friends have wronged you and forsaken you, when those who hate God have persecuted you, uh, even to the point of imprisonment and, and maybe even impending death, you're going to be tempted to think that God has forsaken you as well. But here in our passage, at the time above all other times in history, when it would seem that God was not at the helm of the universe, when, when evil seemed to be winning, Jesus addresses God in the most intimate way. Father. Now, he always addressed God in that way except for one time from the cross. What did he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, in that moment, Jesus was bearing our sin so that we would never have to be forsaken by God. So when we face extreme trials, we need to draw near to our Heavenly Father and not drift away from Him. But to know and trust God as your loving Father in a time of trial, guess what? You've got to know Him as such before the trial hits. If you're not walking in intimacy with God before the trial hits, it's not likely that you'll know how to flee to Him when the trial does hit. Jesus knew God intimately as His loving and sovereign Father. He knew that nothing happens apart from God's purpose of good for his children. So Jesus, Hebrew says, for the joy that was set before him did what? He endured the cross, despising the shame, and yet is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Have you ever applied Jesus' prayer to your life? Do you know God's forgiveness because you have put your trust in Christ? Has he rescued, rescued you from the imminent danger of God's judgment on your sin? And, you know, how many are aware of the, the, the fatal accident that happened right up here at Edgewood in 319? It was on Thursday, I believe. Um, a lady was headed north. She had stopped. She was turning left onto Edgewood. person behind him, her, her, her for whatever reason, did not notice her, stopped, hit her. She went flying into the other lane and was hit full speed head-on by a much larger vehicle, and they say she died instantly. She's a member of, of Lake Ellen uh, Church. Um, 
That's how quick. That's how close you are to eternity. Now, just as a matter of practicality, this is something that you need to hear, and I'm serious. When you pull, especially when you got traffic, when you pull up and you're going to be turning left, do not turn your wheels left. The reason she went in the other lane is because she had already turned her wheels and was ready to go. And when he pushed her, she just went right in. Leave your wheels straight. If somebody doesn't hit you, if doesn't see you and hits you, you're just going to go flying down your lane. That ain't going to feel good, but it might protect you. But again, we're, we're just that close to eternity. Perhaps someone here is harboring bitterness toward those who have wronged you. If you don't root it out, it's going to short-circuit God's grace in your life, and it's going to defile many others as well. You must ask God for the grace to forgive so that His mercy, which He has shown you, might flow through you to others. Even if it seems that He has abandoned you. How many have ever felt abandoned by God? I'm talking about feeling, not, not, not in reality. We know that He doesn't, but boy, sometimes it feels like it. All right, even when that's the case, you must draw near to Him as your faithful Father, pouring out your needs to Him in prayer. Then, uh, if the world uh, hangs you on a cross as it did His Son, it's going to be sweet to you because you are going to know His presence. You need that intimacy with the Father. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for these short words of Jesus here on the cross. Uh, Lord, and what they mean for us. And God, we understand that salvation comes through repentance and faith and these things uh, that you give us. So I pray that you would work that into the hearts and lives of those here who do not know you. And for us that do, Father, I pray that you would just show us uh, really truly how wicked we are and that we need your grace. We need your mercy daily. We need to live in the shadow of the cross continuously because you are God. You are our Savior. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know God through His Son, Jesus Christ, it's quite clear in Scripture that Jesus is the only way. Jesus Himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you don't know God through His Son, Jesus Christ, I encourage you to come this morning. Ask God to forgive you of your sins and then trust the completed work of Jesus on the cross. He's done it. What was the last thing? Well, it wasn't. It was the second to the last thing he said on the cross. He said, it is finished. He's talking about redemption. Hebrews makes that quite clear. Through his one sacrifice, he has sanctified for all time those who believe in Jesus. It's a done deal. It is finished. All right? You need, if you need Jesus, you come talk to me today. Uh, if, if you're a believer, I hope that you just kind of been encouraged uh, maybe a little uh, I don't know uh, it's hard to look at yourself isn't it that's what God wants you to do he wants you to look, look deep within we're geared to look at other folks and go hmm yeah, mm, yeah no right take out that log that is in your eye and then you might be, be okay to take out the speck that's in their eye no you need to look inside today and understand your need for the cross of Christ today. You need God's mercy. You need His grace. Hang on to Him. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. 
You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.